0: Hey Ram Church, so glad you're with us this morning. We're in part four of our peace series where we're exploring what it looks like to find God in the midst of chaos. Uh, I loved Pastor Stacy's word last week on envy and, and really leaning in to God. And she's going to be speaking next week as well. And then we have a special guest in a few weeks. So stay connected. This series uh, is certainly impacting my life. I hope it's been impacting yours as well. Now, if, if you've been catching uh, this series so far, my messages have focused on patterns that we can see in Jesus's life um, that really are an invitation for us to live like he did and to find the life that he found. So we're going to dive into another pattern today. But I want to start off by reading uh, Genesis. And we're going to read uh, some verses from chapter 2 and 3. Now, we've kind of been riffing off of Genesis uh, the past few messages anyway. But I, want, I really want to read this, and it's going to kind of set up where we're going. So let's read together. Let's start off in Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse number 5. So when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant, of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man or humanity of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That's, that literally means he, he created a soul, and the, and the man became a living creature or a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden in, the, in in Eden. Just a little geek out moment. I love God picturing God as actually planting something. Isn't that a neat image there? The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, now we're going to, to chapter number three and we have a new character that enters the story. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The title of my message today is, is it really that simple? Is it really that simple? And we're gonna explore another pattern that we can learn from the life of Jesus. That's really gonna lead us, I believe, and I believe scripture teaches us into a place of flourishing and thriving in our life. You know, it's amazing when I just look at just popular culture. How we, we we're fascinated with superheroes. If you look at like the list of top grossing films uh, in history, there are so many that that crowd that list of top grossing films that involve somebody with with superhero powers, that something that's beyond human ability. And when you, when you look at that, you, you kind of go, why? Why do we have such a fascination? I mean, I even remember as a boy growing up reading comic books where people had, you know, superhero powers and it was just enamored by that. And I think something about that points to our desire as humans to want to live without limits. We, we want to live like a limitless life. Uh, we we want to live kind of beyond, and there's something in us that kind of calls to that or is at least enamored, fascinated by that. And if you look around our world, there are limits everywhere, aren't there? My neighborhood, the neighborhood I live in, you know, when you drive into our neighborhood, there's a sign that says, 20's plenty. Uh, how many have seen that sign? I don't like that sign. I don't like speed limits, right? They're around. The other day I was in the park and somebody came flying through, flying down the side street and they hit a speed bump. And I thought the suspension was just gonna fall out of the bottom of the car. And of course, in you know my mind, I'm like, oh gosh, what are they even thinking? You know, 20 plenty. Drive, right? drive, drive the speed limit. But when I'm driving, it's like I can always justify like breaking the speed limit. Uh, but there's limits everywhere. I mean, drinking, drink responsibly. Betting, bet responsibly. If if you live in Manchester, if you're in Manchester, uh, when you drive into Curry Mile, it should have a sign that says eat responsibly. We we know that limits are all around us, and for some reason. Uh, we don't like them. one of One of my girls uh, she' she's, she doesn't have an allergy, but she has a dairy sensitivity. Um, but ironically, her fa- all of her favorite foods have some sort of dairy in it. And so we're constantly like managing her desire to eat dairy. like how much can she actually eat? Before, before her stomach gets, gets all messed up. And it, it, I think that's such a picture of how we feel. It's like once you know you can't do something, like you desire, you just wanna do it all the more. And, and if you have small kids, you, you know that. The, the thing that's gonna fuel them to want to do something is when you say you can't. It's, it's the two, two letter word, no. No, you can't do that. And there's something in us that once a limitation is put in our lives, there's just something about us that that we want what we can't have. We want something beyond the limits of what, of what we're currently living in. And when we look at the story of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, where, where God creates Man and woman in in his image, and he, he starts to walk and to live and to work alongside of humanity. There was a created order, wasn't there? There was uh, he he put humanity over all of creation, and it it says very clearly that that the mandate to humanity was um, was to be fruitful, multiply, and take dominion over all of creation. But we although we were over creation, we were meant to be under the creator. And But there was something in us, in, in, and we just read it in Genesis chapter 3, where we wanted what we couldn't have. We wanted what was beyond our limits. And if you really look at what is sin in the context of Genesis chapter 3, this to me, it really, in the, in the context we just read, sin can be defined as a heart that won't accept its God-given limits. I, when you really look at what was happening there in Genesis, that we, we wanted what we couldn't have, and it's wild to think. I, I've had, as a, as a church leader, I've had people ask me through the years, you know, why, if God knew that Adam and Eve would, would eat from the tree, why would he put the tree in the garden? And if you really want to explore that topic, there's, there's a lot of things that have been written. One of my favorite is uh, actually a science fiction novel written by C.S. Lewis. It's called Paralandra, and it's amazing. He kind of dives into through story form how that could have all unfolded, but it was really an opportunity um, to, to express love in a really unique way. But, but, and it all had to do with staying within the limits that we're given. So you could define sin, the original sin, as transgressing our limitations. The Genesis temptation was to reject a divine limitation. We didn't want what was ours. We wanted what was God's. We didn't, we didn't want it to stay within our, our, our mold. We wanted what was somebody else's. And you can see this all over, you can see this all over culture, but we all have limitations, don't we? Look at some of the limitations that are just built into who we are. Talent? I mean, uh, it doesn't matter how much I desire to play professional football. It ain't happening. I mean, I could practice day and night, and I just don't have the athletic ability. Um, our artistic abilities. That could be with, with design or music or something. We, we just have some innate, communication, organization, craftsmanship. I mean, some of you can build things with your hands that it's just, it's astounding. It's just a gift you were given. Humor, empathy, strategic thinking, leadership, learning, teaching. There's so many others, but, uh, but that's a limitation. There are things that I have a talent for, and then there are things I, I don't have a talent for. My intellect, some of the people I most look up to and that have influenced my life, I mean, we just have a different EQ and a different IQ, and that's just how it is. Our ability to interact with the world around us and to think through these things is just different. I have a, I have an intellectual limitation, time limitation. All of us have a time limitation. Finances, starting points, our family of origin is different, and our experiences growing up all were different. But. There, there's actually something that I believe beneath all these limitations that's that's kind of driving, especially in the West, our idea on what it means to live with limitations. And I think that that's more of an ideological uh, perspective on our limits. So, I, so just hang with me for a minute because we're going into some patterns that I think are going to really set you free. But I really want to set this up in a way that I think resonates with you and makes makes us understand why do we feel this drive to live beyond our limits. Well, I think, the, I think a secular ideology um, that we're living in today in the West wants to just categorically write off anything that wants to limit us, anything that wants to define us, Anything that wants to categorize us, and that ranges from from anything from economic background to to gender to race. For us, we want to to alleviate all categories and all definitions, all limitations. And there's something, I think, in us, an ideology under that saying, limitations are evil. There's something bad about that limit. And I came up with a word. Is it okay if I just invented my own word, and one of the things we do with these limitations in the West is this. It's what I call more more And here's how I'm going to define this made-up word that I just created. Beliefs and practices that tell you the path to fulfillment is overcoming all limitations. The uh, beliefs and practices that tell us the path to fulfillment is overcoming all limitations. Now, you know the wild thing? Even as I read that, I I can even feel it in my own heart and mind. It's like, well, what's wrong with that? It, this is this is this idea is so prevalent that to us it feels normal. Yeah, I mean, isn't fulfillment overcoming all limitations? And I think you're going to find in this message, is it? Is that really the path to fulfillment? Another way we can look at Morism is this: it is the relentless pursuit of what we don't have. And maybe that hits home a little more with you that you can sense this kind of this activity around everything in our life and our mind and the way we see ourselves, the way we see success, the way we view what it means to be a great parent, the way we view what it means to be a, a great worker or a provider, all based on this relentless pursuit of what I don't have, that what I need is beyond what I currently have. It's going back to that original sin. Look at what Dr. Richard Swenson says. Uh, he, he wrote this in his book called Margins. If you're homeless, we send you to a shelter. If you're penniless, we offer you food stamps. If you're breathless, we connect you to oxygen. But if you are marginless, what's he talking about? Living at your limits or even beyond our limits. We give you yet one more thing to do. Does anybody feel that way? If I just said to you, how how are your margins in your life? Are you at your limits? Do you have like way more energy to go, way more money to go? It's like, yeah, at the end of the month, I just always have more. I just always have extra. Or are you at your limits or beyond your limits? What is, I, would, I would guess, and I bet I'm not far off on this, that most of us who are gathered or listening to this today are at or beyond our limits. What is that a symptom of morism? It's a symptom of, oh my gosh, I've got to live. I've, there's something I need that's beyond what I currently have. But... For some of us, this feeling of, like, I've, I've got to get beyond my limits, if it doesn't drive you into moreism, it's going to drive you into a different mode. And that is the mode of, I know there's no way I can overcome my limitations. So this is the other mode. Uh, it's, it's called escapism. And this actually is a word. so I just just I'm just gonna make up one word per message, guys. So this is this is an actual word escapism. but this is my definition. Beliefs and practices that tell us life's limitations are unbearable and make flourishing impossible. So we look at our inability to get more, to have better friends, to get more money, to have a better job. and, and we, we we feel it's impossible to meet the demands of this desire for more, more, more more, to overcome our limitations. And so instead of engaging in moreism, which which is one answer that culture gives us, we just decide we're going to escape. The only solution then is escape. Look at this. Escapism, I'm going to define as the relentless pursuit of distraction and relief through entertainment. Now, we're not looking for a solution. We're just looking for relief. We're not looking to solve the problem. We're not even, you know, the, the problem seems insurmountable. We're just looking to distract ourselves from the problem and we're looking for relief. There was, rec- there was recently some research done um, in a book called The Demise of Guys. And the research showed that the average young man in the West, by the time he becomes the age of 21, has played 10,000 hours of video games. 10,000 hours. Now... Nothing against video games, but when you've played 10,000 hours by the age of 21, you're living in an age of distraction. There's something on the inside that you're trying to remove yourself from. There's other research, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this, and others, that once you spend 10,000 hours on something, if it's the right type of work and effort, you can actually become a world-class expert in that. And now remember, we're talking about video games here. What are we escaping from? What are we escaping from? Look at, look at this other uh, research that's been done that the average reader um, reads between 100 and uh, excuse me, 200 and, and 400 words per minute. At that rate listen to this at that rate, we could all read 100 books every year. It would take us about 209 hours in a year. Uh, that's a lot, of, a lot of numbers. But you're thinking, wow, I don't have 200 and extra nine, 209 extra hours in a year. There's no way I could read 100 books. Now, a lot of people w- would look at me and go, oh, yeah, you, you read a lot of books. Well, I, I don't read that many books. But let's look at this. So you say, that's a lot. But the average American, this research shows, spends 705 hours per year on social media. So we're in this age of escaping. We're escaping from reality. I don't have time to read 100 books a year, but I do have 700 extra hours to be on social media. But television, we spend over 2,700 hours a year. And it would just take 200 hours to read 100 books a year. What are we doing? We're escaping from reality. But I want to tell you, there is a third option. And the third option is to satisfy that longing for more on the inside, that longing to overcome all limitations, by a relationship with an eternal God. We talked about that hunger for eternity in my last message. I want to encourage you to go back and listen to it. It It's called Patterns of Rest and Renewal. What is that eternal desire on the inside of us? But the third option is I'm not going to satisfy this by morism. I'm not going to satisfy this by escapism. I'm going to satisfy it by finding my identity in a relationship with an eternal God and allowing him to fill and do the impossible inside my limitations. I actually want to take this a bit further and go get a bit more specific with you. This could be a bit painful, so warning, but here's a principle I think is important for us to see. Look at this. I actually believe rejecting your limits can be a form of pride. I, I believe it, it, it can be something on the inside of us, and if we take it back to the original sin, you can see that, that, that that's present there. We even know that the way the Bible describes the original, original sin, the, 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 the sin of Lucifer himself was he wanted to put himself in the place of God. He wanted to get beyond his limits and have what he couldn't have. Rejecting your limits can be a form of pride. Sometimes in the church, we're actually the best at spiritualizing, going beyond our limits. Now, Look at a verse that we throw around for this all the time in Philippians chapter 4. I can do all things... Through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. How many times is that verse quoted for all the stuff that we want to do and that we feel like God's called us to do? I can do all things for Christ who strengthens me. That's We see that embroidered on pillows and, and, and uh, pictures on our wall. I can do all things. And we're like, yes, I can do anything. I can live beyond my limits. I can go far out there in the outer reaches of margin. But we're actually missing the context of what Paul is trying to say here. Let's, let's go two verses earlier and say, what is Paul actually saying right here when he's talking about all things? Look at this. 1 Corinthians 4, 11 and 12. Paul's saying, I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to, to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul is saying, I can do all things, by being, what's, the, what's Christ working in him? The ability to be content with what he's been given. The, the context of that verse is not just pick a thing out there and just say, yeah, God can help me do that. The context of that verse is, I'm gonna recognize the circumstances that, that surround me, what I've been given. I'm gonna go, God can give me strength to live with this starting point, to live with these talents, to live with my limited time, to live with my dairy sensitivity, whatever, whatever it could be to live inside these limitations. And what I'm expecting is I'm, is, is I'm expecting God to invade those limitations and, and show himself strong in that place. And now I'm gonna take this even a step further. I know we're, I'm doing a lot of setup here, but we're gonna to get to how this affects your life here in just a moment. But look at this. Uh, Paul wasn't the only one who realized that he had limitations. Actually, look at this. Jesus himself embraced human limitations. That Jesus chose, this is the essence of the gospel, that Jesus lived in heaven. He lived in a, in a place with, with, uh, with unlimited, unlimited resources, unlimited ability, unlimited authority. And he chose to set that aside to come and adopt human limitations. Why did he do that? So that he could then live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died so that he could then invite us into a life where we can experience the fullness of life, unlimited life inside of the limitations of what it means to be human. That's the essence of the gospel. But it's so wild to think the creator of the universe when he chose to rescue you and I, he embraced human limits. I mean, Jesus was tired. We see this in the Gospels. It's so wild to think Jesus—Jesus, Jesus, you mean God was tired? Yeah, Jesus was tired. We can see Jesus's emotional capacity was tested at times. There were times when his when his close friends went through hardship and he was grieving. We, he was he was limited by space by location. Like he actually had to walk places. I mean, if if I'm if I am Jesus, I'm going to create some sort of method of transportation at some point so I don't have to walk everywhere. I mean, Jesus was limited by space. He was limited by time. Do you realize that Jesus himself practiced Sabbath? We introduced the idea of Sabbath last week and, uh, excuse me, at my last message. And I want you to go back and watch that if you didn't see that. and Maybe if it was a new concept to you, maybe you should watch it again. Um, But Jesus himself practiced Sabbath. Now, I just have to put myself in his world. I have to put myself in his place. And I realize if I, if I knew I had 33 years on planet Earth, okay, and only three and a half years of that would be ministry, first of all, the first 30 years of my life, I'd be busting it. I would be preparing for that ministry. I'm going to be, if I'm Jesus, I'm going to use my ridiculous, unlimited intellect to figure out how I can create more modes of transportation, how I can create marketing methods, Because when I hit my ministry start date, it's about to be on. I mean, I'm about to do it. So Jesus starts his three and a half years of ministry. And then he decides, wait a second, I'm going to take one-seventh of my entire time in ministry. I'm going to take it off. I'm just going to take a breather. So if you look at that time-wise, out of his three and a half years of ministry, he took off over five months. Five months of his three and a half months. He said, yeah, I realize I have human limitations. Not only that, that, that's just Sabbath time. That doesn't count festivals, celebrations, uh, weddings, parties that he went to. But just the time that he took off, he recognized his human limitations. Jesus had the most epic, world-changing purpose of anyone who's ever walked the planet, and he took time off. He took five and a half months off. Dallas Willard, the the American philosopher, someone asked him one time um, in conversation, they said, if you were to describe Jesus in one word, um, what would it be? And and Dallas says so many different words begin to flood his mind. And his final answer was relaxed, relaxed. And there isn't, I don't think, anything that's more subversive to Western culture now than a leader with the weight of the world on their shoulders, being relaxed. I mean, what a contrast. But I think there is a principle that Jesus lived by, and this is the principle that I want you to understand today, and it's this principle about faith. Faith isn't believing I have no limits. It's believing God can fulfill his promises inside my limits. You see, we don't serve an unlimited potential in ourselves. We don't serve ourselves. What we serve is an unlimited God. And in his unlimited ability, just like he did with Jesus, where he can fill Jesus's human limits and do the impossible inside of his limitations. When we stand in the place of humility and recognize, I need rest, I need time, I need margin in my life, All of a sudden, that's not not resisting faith. That is the place of faith. Look how much greater your faith has to be when you go, you know what, I'm going to live inside the limits God's given me instead of stretching myself thin in every area and just believe in God to make up the difference. How much more faith does it have to be? We're just going to, no, I'm going to be disciplined to stay inside the limits God's given me, and I'm going to believe that he can do the impossible inside these limits. Look at, look at the statement. I want this to go deep in you. Embracing God-given limits is not shirking my responsibility to pursue potential growth and maturity. We should all be pursuing potential growth and maturity. It's not harboring laziness or indifference. Jesus certainly was not lazy or indifferent. Embracing God-given limits is an act of liberation from the storyline that fulfillment is found in the relentless pursuit of more. I want to read that again to make sure you got it. Embracing God-given limits is an act of liberation from the storyline that fulfillment is found in the relentless pursuit of what I don't have. The relentless pursuit of what I don't have, what I I haven't done yet, who I haven't helped, maybe. Um, It's it's liberation from the storyline that fulfillment is found in the relentless pursuit of becoming the perfect version of myself or learning what I don't know or finding greater security or safety in life, or having more friends or being liked more, or even self-expression. When you embrace your God-given limits and stand in that place of faith, realizing God's promises to me were not not, uh, given in, in ignoring my limitations. His promises to me were given recognizing the limitations that I have in life. And how much faith does it take for us to step into that place. Faith isn't believing I have no limits. It's believing God can fulfill his promises inside my limits. You know, when I look back at kind of my own history in church leadership, um, I'm nearing in the next couple years, 20 years in, in church leadership, and most of that time I was not primarily a speaker or a communicator. Most of the time that was behind the scenes and leadership behind the scenes or pastoral leadership. And and um and I really enjoyed that behind the scenes seat. I loved team building and I and I loved um uh I loved the idea of building things. Um and communicating was just kind of like an add-on. And I was surrounded by people that that speaking and communicating seemed like absolutely natural to them. Uh, many of the people that surrounded me—they they thrived in that space. It's like they could pull a sermon out of anything. You could just like point at something, and go, "Hey, preach a sermon on that." And it's like a sermon just comes out of it. And so, because I couldn't relate to that, I recognized that I had a limitation in that area—that that I it didn't come quite as naturally to me as maybe it did to some other people. And because I I recognized that limitation, I kind of wrote that off, and I went, you know, what? I'm I'm just going to focus on what does come most natural to me, but it's um, it's wild that sometimes God actually calls us to to use us in the place of a limitation we think we have. And the reason is because he wants to show himself strong in an area we realize we're limited. He wants to really birth faith in our heart in a fresh way. He wants to to pull that belief out of us. And so now one of the primary things I do is speak and communicate. And I'll tell you, what was the, the, the shift for me? was when I actually embraced my limitations. I stopped comparing my limitations to somebody else's maybe greater ability or greater talents. And I just said, God, you've called me to this and you knew I had these limitations. And when I embraced that, all of a sudden I felt the help of the Holy Spirit. I felt God, uh, I felt that it was an empowering shift. I didn't feel to embrace that limitation was to step out of faith. Actually, I felt it was a step into faith. I felt the help of God in that place. And I think it's the same thing for many of you. you you've disqualified yourself because of limitations in time or education or connections or, or talents. When God's promise is not dependent on your limitations, he's actually want to showing he's, he's going to want to show himself strong through your limitations. That's why the Apostle Paul would say in his letters, "I boast all the more in my weaknesses. Because in my weaknesses, God's, God's strength and his glory is shown perfect through what I am limited to do. So uh, the pattern, all of this is really leading to a new pattern. So really, that was, the, that was the whole setup. And it's leading to a new pattern that I want to teach you today. Now, we've, we've talked about patterns of silence, patterns of solitude, patterns of, of Sabbath, And these patterns are about positioning our life in a place of peace, that God actually already has a place of peace for us. It's not about always quieting the chaos, but it's about finding that place of peace that God has for us. It's not just about believing the right things. It's about adopting the patterns that Jesus lived by. And then we can experience the peace Jesus experienced. So the next pattern I want to teach you today is a pattern of simplicity. It's living simply. Jesus lived a simple life. He lived with the essentials. He lived, he lived knowing what mattered most in his life. He didn't live constantly investing and in maintaining excess. He focused on what really mattered in life. And in that place was a place of peace and effectiveness and power. And I believe that place is also available for you and I. Now, I want to read a passage. That I, that I referenced in my Patterns of Rest and Renewal message, but I want to read it to you because I think it, it, it so clearly shows what a life of simplicity looks like. It's in Leviticus chapter 19. Let's read it together. When you, this is God instructing Israel on, on even how to farm. It's amazing. God has an opinion about every area of life, and it's all for our flourishing. When you harvest the crops of your land, don't harvest the grain. Look at this phrase along the edges. Just say that with me. Along the edges. He's talking about the margins of their field. We're getting we're going somewhere. You see how this is tied to what we talked about earlier. Do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields. Do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It's the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines. Isn't that wild? I mean, to me, that's actually such a picture of our work life. And I know this is, this is talking about agriculture, but if you can just picture your own work life, for me, I'm planting my field and I, I'm going to, I'm going to reap every single thing I planted. Not only that, I'm not going to leave anything on the vine. If I drop something, I'm picking it up. I mean, if I invest in it, I'm harvesting it all. I need it all. And do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners. We're going to talk about that in a bit. Living among you. And then he says this, and let's stick at this phrase for just, stick on this phrase for just a bit. I am the Lord, your God. I love that he ends with that phrase. I think what God's trying to say is, you think that field is your source. You think those vines are your source of fulfillment, of satisfaction, of provision for your life. No, 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 no. You're missing it. I am the Lord. Your God. And when, when you leave your life that, that the world is telling you, your life of escapism or morism, and you adopt a patterned life, a life that's based on the rhythms of Jesus, the rhythms that your maker hardwired into you, you are declaring it's an act of faith. You're declaring, God is my source. I don't live in a way that, that demands from life what I want from it. I know that if I live God's way, He's gonna give me what I need. And not only that, he's gonna give me the people in, he's gonna give the people in my world what they need as well. There's two types of limits that I want us to, to talk about. Two types. There's limits we've been given. Those are really the limits I talked about earlier. They're, they're kind of unavoidable. Your talent, your time, your family of origin, your, your past experiences. Nobody chose where they were born, right? Um, but there's also limits we give ourselves. And this is that's the biggest challenge. I, I don't know about you, but for me, that's the biggest challenge. Is when, when I have to put self-imposed limits on myself. That 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 is what we talked about: silence, solitude, Sabbath. Those are limits you put on yourself. God's asking His people to limit themselves, not just to obey the limits they were given, but to give them themselves limits. So, what is simplicity? Here, here's my definition of what simplicity is in the Christian life. It's the choice to live with less so you can find more in what you have simplicity is about intentionally creating margin margin is the space between what you're carrying and your limits what is simplicity? It's the choice to live with less so that you can find, you can pour, you can pull more out of what you've been given. It's also choosing not to harvest to the edge of your field. It's choosing to live with margin. And, and so these are all concepts by, right now, but how does that really reach your everyday life and why do we want to live this way? Why is this better than moreism or escapism? Well, I want to talk to you about three ways, and this is where we're going to end the message, three ways, three things that we find when we practice simplicity, when we, when we practice the Christian, Jesus-centered practice of simplicity. Three things that we are going to find when you practice this. And the first one is, I believe you're gonna find focus for what matters most. When you practice simplicity, we see this in the life of Jesus, he wasn't distracted by things that didn't matter. Now, it's, it's wild because some of the things he chose to do seem like distractions. They seemed like distractions to the people around him. So he was on his ministry journeys, and at times, children would come up to him. And we see those, his closest friends, his ministry companions, his partners in ministry, that were saying, no, 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 don't bother Jesus, don't bother Jesus. And you think, he, he has the greatest purpose of any human who's ever lived on his shoulders. Now, I, I know about my daily rhythm. If I'm focused on something, and something that wasn't on my mind comes up around me, I'm, I'm gonna maybe treat it with, Respect, um, but I'm gonna move on. You know, hey, good to see you, kids. I, I'm on a mission. I have something better to do. But Jesus so lived in what matters most that he was he was so in the moment with the person in front of him. What what allowed him to do that? He wasn't focused on all, on excess. He wasn't focused on more 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 more. He knew that simplicity allowed him to focus on what mattered most. And at that moment it was that children, it was those children's faces right in front of him. He was looking at the one in front of him. He knew this matters most. And he taught he taught a principle that, that is so key for us in understanding this. And it's found in Matthew 6, 21, the famous Sermon on the Mount. He said this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is. It's amazing when you, when you hear that word treasure. What's he talking about? Your store, your more. Wherever your more is, wherever you've, 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 uh, held things up, wherever you've gathered, your heart is there. And I want to tell you, we think that we we put our treasure in places where our heart is, but I think this verse gives us a little reverse of this. Look at this principle right here. Your heart follows your treasure. Your heart follows your treasure. So when you're in this more, 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 why does your heart continue to desire that? Because you're putting your treasure out there beyond your current limits, beyond your current limits. And Jesus goes on to to talk about this connection between uh, our soul and the complexities of life, the more of life, the excesses of life. In Matthew chapter 16, verse number 26, he says this, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? And maybe where you're sitting right now, you go, no, you don't You don't know my needs, Joe. You don't know my needs. Well, I'll tell you, at the end of this journey uh, called life, we're going to look back and, and the, our needs are probably going to be pretty low on the priority list. Our soul is going to be pretty high. And Jesus is teaching that those two things are connected. Those two things are connected. That when we live a life of chosen simplicity, a life where that where it's not just full of the pursuit of more and escaping. Life where we're not just buying, buying, buying. We find that, that our soul is rescued from needing, 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 and then we're able to focus on more. This is what Paul said about his own ministry, his own journey in life in 1, uh, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. I'm just going to find contentment in just food and clothing. I know this is so antithetical to the culture around us in the West, but that's why this message is needed for both you and I, is because this is not the storyline around us. The storyline says uh, around us says, we can't be content unless I have more than just food and clothing. But when you find the simplicity of of just of just following Jesus, of sticking to this pattern of Jesus' simple living, all of a sudden we can discover what matters most. Now. Just a little side note here. This is not saying that you can't have things. It's not saying that you can't have wealth. They're actually wealthy people, a part of our Ramp Church community. But many of those people live uh, some of the most generous lives of anybody I know. This is is about that our life isn't given to serving the need for more, 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 more. That's what it is. Jesus himself had relationships with, with wealthy people. He was surrounded by donors who followed him that had great wealth. But Jesus, and Jesus wasn't rebuking one at the expense of the other and saying, no, he was trying to focus them on what really mattered. So let me make this practical for you. How do you find focus? How is focus found in a life of simplicity? Here's some questions I want you to ask yourself. What's, uh, can I get corny with you? Because this is kind of a corny preacher statement. What's the why behind what you buy? What is the why? Why are you buying that? I know you're corned out right now because of the level of preacherness on that statement. But it, it's going to stick with you. I promise next time you're in a place where you're looking to buy something, you're going to, you're going to remember this this corny statement. What's the why behind this buy? Because so many so many things we acquire in life, there's a deeper why. It's that morism or sometimes we purchase for escapism. It's retail therapy. You know, if I'm talking to you, whose story are you living? Are you living the story that Jesus has written for you? This is, this is what Psalms 139 tells us. It says, before a single day of your life came to pass, every day was written in a book. Whose story are you living? Are you living the story that, that research tells us we see about 4,000 adverts every single day? Are you living the storyline that those adverts are trying to tell you? Or are you living the story that God's written for your life? Are you living his identity for you? Whose story are you living? Look at this. Practice telling yourself, no. It's a terrible word. I know it is. It's a two-letter word. It's awful. Practice telling yourself that. Why? Because your soul needs it. Your soul needs it. My soul needs it. We just need to tell ourselves no sometimes. So the first thing is we're going to find focus in this life of simplicity. The second thing we're going to find is we're going to find generosity through margin. We're going to find generosity through margin. Let's go back to this verse in Leviticus 19.10. This is so good. I'm gonna focus on a few different phrases than we did earlier. It's the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines and don't pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Why? Because I want you to leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I'm the Lord your God. This is want I ask. If you're consuming every single thing that you've been given in life, how much is left over for the people in your world? How much is left over? I can tell you, if you're not living with margin, There's nothing left over. I I can relate to this. I mean, sometimes at the end of a workday, I I literally feel like I have nothing to give to my kids, nothing to give to my wife to invest in my marriage, nothing to give to invest in our home. I I feel like I'm at the end. And what have I done? I've, I've harvested my entire crop. There's nothing left for anybody else. God's not calling you to live that way. He isn't. He's calling you to have enough margin that you can live a generous life. And part of simplicity is finding generosity through margin. I love this. look, Look at this statement. This is Paul saying this in Acts chapter 20, verse number 35. He says, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work. This doesn't mean you don't work. It means you work hard. We must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now that sounds like an awesome Christian platitude. But let me tell you, what if it was true? What if it actually is a more blessed position, a more blessed posture, a more blessed place to be when you're a giving person and not a receiving person? What if Jesus meant that when he said it? What if the blessing you live in is greater when you give? And see for some of us that's that's so That is so targeting our thoughts because we're going, no, blessing is receiving. or But is it? Blessing is getting more stuff. Blessing is having that furniture I want. Blessing is having that emblem on the front of the car that I need. Blessing is having more zeros in my bank account. That is blessing. Maybe it's not. Maybe blessing is something deeper than that. Maybe blessing is a confidence in your identity. Maybe blessing is a fulfillment in, 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 your, in the, the work of your hands. Maybe blessing is a thriving in your relationships where you don't feel threatened, where you're not fearful when, when circumstances turn uh, a different way. Maybe blessing is being able to lay your head on your pillow at night, feeling confident that you're giving your life for something that matters. Maybe that's blessing. And maybe it's more blessed to give than to receive. And this is the promise of givers. Look at this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. Now he who supplies seed, that's God. God's going to supply seed to the one who gives. He's talking about you. When you give, when you live a life of generosity, um, he's going to give you seed to the sower. He's going to give you bread for food. He will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And look at this principle. Here's the principle I want you to see. The ultimate sign of trust in God is a life of of generosity. The ultimate sign. It's not a prayer. It's not lifting your hands during worship. It's not subscribing to the Ramp Church YouTube channel, which I hope you do, by the way. It isn't that. What is a life? uh, What's the ultimate sign of trusting God? It's a life of generosity. Because How? Because when I start to live generously with my time, with my relationships, with my finances, I am declaring to myself, to the world around me, and to God. I know when I give, you're gonna give me more. You're gonna supply everything that I need. And that is a posture of trust towards God. I've heard it said over and over and over, and I'm sure you have too, you can't out give God. And it just is the truth. When you give, he's gonna fill the space that just emptied by your generosity. So how do you find generosity? This is, what, this is some things I want you to look at practically. Finding generosity. Here's what I want you to ask. What commitments are keeping you from finding the joy of giving? What commitments are keeping you from finding the joy? You have commitments right now. Time commitments, relational commitments, financial commitments that are eating up your margin. They're eating up that which is meant to be set aside for those in your world, the foreigners among you, the poor among you. You're You yourself are eating what is meant to be served to others. You can't reap to the edges of your field. I want you to start budgeting margin. Like that you just have margin built into your budget. It, and it's there for, for times of need. It's, I'm just station, I do this in our own life. We, 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 we desire to do this in the life of Ramp Church as a community, that we have enough to meet needs like the crisis that we're in right now as a city. We have enough right now to meet the needs of our city because why? We're budgeting margin. Embrace simp- uh, living simply, embrace simplicity. So the first thing we find in a life of simplicity is focus. The second thing we find is generosity through margin. But the third thing we find is we find freedom through the elimination of excess. I know this is already painful just reading that, but let me dive in to this a bit. Look at Luke 12. Jesus is saying this. This is amazing. Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That's, that's you know, such a Bible-sounding word, isn't it? But it just means you want what other, people's ha- what other people have. You want, and I'm telling you, it doesn't just happen in material things. It can happen in talents, connections, whatever. For one's life does not consist in the abundance or the excess of one's possession. Your life is not measured or defined or even enriched by an abundance of things. You know that, but Jesus is identifying that. Richard Swenson, we we heard from him at the beginning. Let's let's look what he says again. Um, We have more things per person than any other nation in history. Just let that sink in. You and I have more things per person than any other nation in history. Closets are full, storage space is used up, cars can't fit into our garages having first imprisoned us with debt. Look at this next, the next part of this quote. Possessions then take over our houses and occupy our time. This begins to sound like an invasion. Everything I own, owns me. Why would I want more? It's an invitation to cut off the excess. You know, and maybe you're thinking, gosh, I don't have excess. I'm just trying to meet my own needs. Do you know, when you look at at the at our wealth in the west on a global scale, if if you make 30,000 pounds or more a year, you're in the top 1% of earners in the world. In the world, in the world. If you make more than 20,000 pounds a year, you're in the top 4% of earners in the entire world. We are wealthy on a global Scale, and at at some point, everything I own starts owning me, and that is the danger. But it gets to this principle right here: cutting excess is an act of liberation. That's that's my heart for you today. I want to liberate you. I'm not trying to get you to have less stuff. I'm trying to get you to discover the joy and what matters most by by an act of liberation. And so here's what here's what you need to do to find freedom. Here's some things that you can do practically. I want you to ask, what's the total cost of owning this? I know you're going through a midlife crisis and you want a motorcycle. I know that. But when you buy a motorcycle, you have to maintain it. You have to pay to maintain it. You have to wash it. You have to ride it. Do you really have all those hours and dollars in your budget? What's the total cost of owning this item? We we don't look at that. We just look at the dollar amount. We look at the pound amount and then we're going to buy it. What's the total cost? Number two, I want you to follow the patterns of Jesus. How do we cut excess off of our life? We look at silence, solitude, simplicity, and Sabbath. And all of a sudden, we find those excesses. We start to live a life of simplicity. We find focus. We find generosity. And then we find freedom. It's an act of liberation. And I want to remind you, as I'm closing today, the verse that's really holding this whole series of peace together, and that is Matthew chapter 11. Uh, 28 through 30 where jesus gives you the invitation to come to him all you who are weary you're burdened and his promise to you is that he's going to give you rest he says take my yoke upon you learn from me for he's gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls he says for his yoke is easy and his burden is light and i just want to just declare that over you today that today you find the focus you commit to find the focus you commit to find generosity. You commit to find the freedom available in being disconnected from the excesses, from moreism and escapism. And today you're going to find the simplicity of embracing your limits, embracing the place God's put you, and then finding that He's going to supernaturally provide for you to, to fulfill every promise over your life. I bless you today in Jesus' name.